So Romans chapters 9 through 11 are one continuous thought. In chapter 9, we looked at the difficult doctrine of predestination, and we found that as God, Jesus has the authority to judge and the right to have mercy. Last week, Daniel taught on chapter 11, and if you haven't heard it, please go back and uh, listen to the podcast at gcfdayton.org. Let's pick up this week and in chapter 10, verse 17. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for, quoting Psalm 19, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So that's quoting Moses in the law, the first half of the Old Testament. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, quote, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. So that's Isaiah, the prophets, or the second half of the Old Testament. So the whole Old Testament agrees with this description of, of how the Jews, the Jewish nation, usually got mostly off base in what it means to follow God, or they just simply abandoned him for other gods. And we have found that we are a lot like them. Verse 21, but of Israel... He says, all day long I have held out my hands, you know, like a father calling his, calling his uh, daughter or son, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So all these Gentiles have been brought into the people of God, the family of God, the family of faith. They're being grafted into the, the tree of life whose root is Christ and who has borne fruit in all the world. And as all nations have been, uh, families from all nations have been brought in, as was God's plan all along. But most of the Jewish people did not trust in Christ. Most of the Jewish people throughout the Old Testament did not trust in God. So, we go back all the way to Exodus and we find Moses praying, interceding uh, on, on behalf of God's people in the wilderness. You know, when God says, well, I'm just going to judge them and I'll make a great nation out of you. And he's like, no, no, no. Everybody will accuse you of not being able to fulfill your promises. And God answers Moses' intercession, just like the father listens to the intercession of the son on our behalf and we who are like the Israelites in the wilderness are saved because of God's faithfulness, not because of our own. So that raises the question, though. We've looked at a lot of questions in this continuous narrative of Romans 9 through 11. You know, what then, is God unjust? What then, is, is he unfair? We said, uh, and we look here at, is God unable to fulfill his word or did God break his promises? Did God abandon his people? 
Romans chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. If you go back to the Greek and the way they use their grammar and the word rejected, um, when he says, has God rejected his people, he's not waffling back and forth and thinking about it. The way the sentence is written in the original Greek, it's like begging the answer, no. And of course, that's the answer. God has not abandoned you. God will not abandon you. God has not abandoned his people, the Jews. By no means. And Paul says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, right? Benjamin was like one of the best tribes if you're a Jew and you think in kind of a worldly sort of way because the tribe of Benjamin produced the first king. The tribe of Benjamin was the location of the, the city of God, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, right? And it was where the temple was located. And when the country split and 10 tribes uh, uh, rejected the Lord and, and faith in God mostly, and two tribes stayed, sort of. Who stayed? Judah and Benjamin. So here's an Israelite to whom the Lord continued his faithfulness. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? Now, raise your hand real quick if you read the history of Elijah and the people of Israel at that time. You remember like King Ahab and Queen Jezebel? Things were really bad. This may not be the worst time in all of Israel's history, but it's pretty close. In, in that time, there was widespread rejection of God by Israelites during the life of Elijah. And so Paul goes to the worst point in their history to answer the question, has God rejected us? Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Elijah prayed, Lord, they have killed your prophets. That would be like if all, the, if all the pastors and church leaders in a country got rounded up and killed, pretty much all of them. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. That would be like if uh, mobs came through and burned all the churches in the country. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace, chosen, elected, kept. God predestined their faith, and God brought it to pass. Look closely at how, how it's written, how God answers Elijah. I have kept for myself. The way he says that implies that if God didn't keep them by his grace, restrain the evil intentions that lived within their own hearts, that they too would have bowed the knee to Baal. So too, 
at the present time. So this is fast forwarding to this letter being written by Paul to the church in Rome. You have Jews and Gentiles, and you have a lot of Jews who are pretty confident that we're the people of God genetically, ethnically. We were the chosen ones. We got the promises. You know, the Bible was written to us and for us. And, and just by being born, we're going to heaven because we were born into church, so to speak, you know? And then you have the Gentiles, and they're, they're arguing, and they're trying, to, they're trying to hash out what is the gospel really? How does God save? Who does God save? And obviously, it was God's intention all along to bring in this full number of Gentiles. And so we continue this thought in Romans 11. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Put yourself in the shoes of Elijah and maybe those 7,000 people at the time of uh, Elijah who had not yet bowed the knee to Baal. Think about how badly things are going. Think about in our lives or in congregations we have uh, been members of or, or seen around us of the faithful, how, uh, how mistakes are made and of the mistakes we have made. Even when you make some of your worst mistakes, God has not abandoned you. God is with his people even when they are driven out of the land in exile. God brought the prodigal son back to his father. If I'm honest with myself and with you, I can say that I make my best attempts to go astray or turn to my own way quite often. But God, Ephesians chapter 2, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, that means like bound together, our life is now inseparable from the life of Christ. And seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Romans 11, verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Do you remember? They tried to achieve uh, perfection by their own self-effort, without God's help, and they failed to obtain the grace of God. The elect, or the chosen, obtained it, 
That is, the Gentiles, the Gentiles weren't seeking after God. God found them, like the prodigal son. God brought the prodigal son back. It wasn't the prodigal son's uh, successful life story that brought him back to the father. It was God's effectual calling and drawing of him. It was the father's drawing him back that brought him back. And that mirrors most of our life stories, all if we're honest. The elect or the chosen obtained the grace of God, but the rest were hardened. And we looked at, in chapter 9, Esau and Jacob, and God hating Esau yet loving Jacob. And we looked at God hardening Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And we said, what then, is God unjust? And we said, no. As God, Christ has the authority to judge and the right to have mercy. And we said, God did not make any new evil in Pharaoh's heart. It wasn't God's fault that Pharaoh was a hard man and committed evil, warranting God's judgment. God did not force Esau to not follow him. There was enough evil there already for them to be judged. It is when God withdraws his restraining hand of grace that we, by our own evil intention, are led astray in sin. God does not cause anyone to sin, nor does God tempt anyone. As it is written, verse 8, God gave them a spirit of stupor. So, what's another word for a spirit of stupor? Have you seen, if maybe you walked by a bar late at night, somebody staggering around with a spirit of stupor? That's a spirit of stupor. This is like drunkenness. When, when that person is staggering drunk, they're, not, they're, they're unaware of their surroundings, and they don't correctly perceive what, what's happening right around them. That's, that's a spirit of stupor. God gave them a spirit of stupor. Did God force them, did God like feed them wine to get them drunk, like too much wine? No, their, their hearts wanted to go that way and God gave them over to a spirit of stupor. That's quoting Isaiah in the prophets. Eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. That's quoting a verse in Deuteronomy in the section of the Jewish scriptures called the law. So here we have the law, then we have the prophets. And sometimes they call it the law, the prophets, and the Psalms right in between, right? And so Paul's going to cover all his basis. The whole Old Testament agrees. The Jewish people overwhelmingly, except for this remnant, were given over to a spirit of stupor. Were given eyes that would not see, that would not perceive, that wouldn't see God, and ears that wouldn't hear, down to this very day. And David says in the Psalms, let their table become a snare and a trap. He's speaking about some of his fellow Jews. A stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their, here's their eyes again, let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So, quoting Isaiah and the prophets, a spirit of stupor. Quoting Deuteronomy and the law, eyes that wouldn't see. And quoting David in the psalm, eyes being darkened 
It's like a triple witness, a triple description in the whole history of the Jewish people. Um, that, that's the whole Bible. There is a biblical pattern all through the history of Israel of God turning them over to their unbelief, which is symbolized in words like blindness and darkness. If you're blind, you're, you're like this, and you don't see the light, right? When you read your Bible, when you read about Israel, you're supposed to think, well, I'm like that. You're supposed to think, if God doesn't save them, all hope is lost. And that's what this passage, Romans 11, is about. But you're supposed to get from there to, if God doesn't open my eyes, like every day, I can't see either. That's why in the New Testament, Jesus is the only one who can open the eyes of the man born blind. There are many miracles through the scripture, but only Jesus opened the eyes of the man born blind. We're not supposed to read this and think, wow, those Jews were blind, but I can see. I'm doing good. Sanctification's going good. I'm in church. I'm good, right? Maybe I'm real good with spiritual disciplines. Um, wow, those Jews were blind, but I can see. You're supposed to read this and think, wow, if even the Jewish people who received God's promises and prophets and the Christ himself did not believe, then who am I to think that I'm likely to be a wise and faithful follower of Christ? That's the point of this passage. Well, the answer to that comes out of chapter 9. Remember Ishmael, Abraham's firstborn, and Isaac, the second-place son, who ended up receiving the promise. And remember Esau, the firstborn, and Jacob, the lowly secondborn, because, you know, in that society, firstborn got it all. But God, up, God, uh, God dug up and turned over and tossed out the societal expectations and their way of thinking of, I deserve this. The firstborn deserves this. All the blessings, the promises ought to go to the firstborn. Esau was the firstborn. Jo Jacob was the lowly secondborn, secondborn who ended up being given the birthright. That's because God is for the underdog. God looks on the lowly. God raises up the broken down. Have you fallen? John 6, verse 40, Jesus said, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. James 5.15, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. For look at verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Romans chapter, 10, verse, Romans chapter 11, verse 11. By no means. Rather, through their trespass, this is the Jewish people, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Why? So as to make Israel jealous. Is God a mocker? He's not mocking them. He is showing them what could have been. And we're going to see in Romans 11 what can yet still be. 
Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Remember flanking chapter 9, at the beginning of chapter 9, Paul has just finished saying, uh, you know, nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Death, life, nothing. You know, demons, governments, whatever, like nakedness, danger, peril, sword, nothing. And then he immediately starts in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, like, I swear I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And then he launches into a description of his sorrow for his own people, his own extended family members, his own own tribe, the Israelites, the Jews, uh, and for their, their abandonment of God and their lowly estate being apart from the promises and the covenant of God. And then verse 10, verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Coming back to chapter 11, verse 12, If their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So God here, through the Holy Spirit, speaking through the Apostle Paul, is raising our expectation of hope for that which is impossible. God is building our expectation that He is doing, has been doing, and is about to fulfill His promises to Israel, even as He has brought and is bringing the full number of Gentiles into into the church, which is true Israel, right? You had the true Jews, and then you had all the rest of them who weren't part of the remnant, although they were ethnically Jewish. And then they were cut off, the temple was destroyed, the presence of God was taken away, and God declared the church and the people of God to be a city set on a hill. So now, no longer do we worship on Mount Zion or in that, at that temple. Every stone was taken one off another. And now, God is seeking worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth, who are part of the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We are the city of God because a city isn't made of buildings. A city is made of people, biblically. You are the new Jerusalem. So what then of the Jewish people? What's going to happen to them, it's been a long time they mostly rejected their Messiah. Has God's word failed? Verse 12, now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to make my fellow Jews jealous. Is that taunting or cruel or mean? No, it's mercy. I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. What has been in the heart of God towards the Jewish people all these years is to bring the full number of them into the family of God as he has foreordained and predestined. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? 
if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, remember what you do if you're offering a sacrifice to God in, in the old times in the Old Testament? You take, you know, maybe a, a lamb or a, a bull or you take some, some dough, you take your bread, and, uh, and you didn't offer, go down to church, you didn't go to the temple and offer all of the bread you had and then eat nothing, you took the first of it. You know, the first of your crops, the first fruits of the ground, you took the first and the best of it, and, and you brought it into the temple and you offered the first fruits. It was a tithe, right? They offered their tenth. They offered their offerings to the Lord. And that showed that they were members of the covenant. They were members of the family of God. And the holy bread offered was representative of the whole lump. And so they themselves demonstrated that they were, uh, they were, they were fully, part by their offering, their partial offering, they demonstrated that their whole lives belonged to God. Just as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, when he identifies himself as a bondservant of Christ Jesus, because he was bought with a price, he didn't belong to himself anymore. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So that refutes once and for all the idea that if you didn't grow up Jewish, you're not as good as the Jews who grew up Jewish. If you came in as a Gentile, if you were an outsider, you're unchurched and you had a horrible past and you come in that you're a lesser Christian because you had a bad track record before coming to Christ. There is now no difference, Jew or Gentile. All alike had sinned and were under God's curse, and all alike are saved by the same faith. Sometimes in the church, we get this attitude that there are people in a congregation with us who are worse than others. And that is our deceitful and accusing heart rising up in us and whispering suspicious and accusing thoughts about other Christians. And what do you do with those thoughts? Like a snake that's invaded your home, you crush them. Amen. So then, if somebody else got cut off from Christ so that I could be brought in, does that make me better than the first ones? Does that make the Gentiles better than the Jews? Here's the flip side of that question. If some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, imagine a little sapling tree just grown out there away from, the, away from the main tree. If some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in, we talked about, we had our botany lesson two weeks ago. We said, you can have a fruit tree and if you've got a dead branch, what do you do with it? You know, you don't cut down the whole tree. You, don't, uh, you cut off the dead branch. So they'd cut off the branch and throw it away, toss it in the fire to be burned. And you could take a good, fruitful branch from another tree, from a wild tree, and you could cut it to match, and you could stick the pieces together, and then you could bind them together so that as the wood grow the wood would grow together and the same nourishing sap would come up from the, the roots, the wild branch could be stuck onto the previously unfruitful tree that had good roots 
and could bear fruit. So, so this is like a real thing in botany that you can take a branch from another tree uh, and bring it in to, to a different root. Um, if you know anything about roses, you know that there's a long and rich history of, cultivate, of horticulture, of cultivating roses to do this. And that's why we have such pretty roses today, because people have worked so hard at that for generations. If some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. That's why it says you were built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So that's a building with a foundation. The house of God, the family of God, the temple of God, the living stones in which his spirit dwells, that's the church, right? Being built through every generation as a house for his name to dwell in. Um, we're built on a foundation. And like a tree when, where we're the branches grafted in, we're connected to a root that we didn't have before. And it's that root that supports us. That makes me meek. It is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Remember the example of the Jews, most of whom were blind and disobedient. And do not be proud, but fear. Verse 22, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So here is a warning to us. What is the warning? How do we continue in God's kindness? Does this say that if I make mistakes or fail, I'll be cut off from Christ? I hope we didn't read it that way because that's not what it says. It says that if we, like the Jews that were cut off, are self-righteous, we are cut off from Christ. Verse 22, note then the kindness and the severity of God Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. In the original Greek, the word for you here is singular, not plural. So it might seem for a moment that you might be cut off from Christ. But remember that unlike our culture, where we tend to think of mainly of ourselves as individuals with our own identity... In most other cultures in all of history, including the people of the Bible, the individual finds his or her identity as part of the group. Well, this is a personal warning. It should not lead you to panic and think, oh no, I'm going to lose my salvation. But rather ask yourself, am I drifting from the faith I started in 
whereby God, who is rich in mercy, gave me faith to believe in Christ, and that faith was counted to me as righteousness. The question here isn't, am I going to lose my salvation? But am I among those who continue in faith, not becoming confident that I'm better than other people and being tricked by my deceitful flesh into being confident in my own righteousness and looking down on everyone else? Don't be fooled. No matter how badly we fail and no matter how faithful or good we are, we are saved only by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so it is that we have come to worship him. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Trust in Jesus to continue to show you the mercy that was given you at the cross. Are you still expecting to get to heaven by being good enough for God to like you? Forget it. It was never about heaven. It was always about him. This passage is about who do you trust? It is our trust in him that is counted as our righteousness. So that when we see that our lives do fall short of the call of God and of the righteous laws of God, this is how we pray. Father, I pray that you would use me for my glory. Let my life be a pleasing offering to you. And with Moses in Psalm 90, establish the work of our hands. Give us fruit that remains. Use me, Lord. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity to those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Here is an interesting verse. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Who is Jacob? Renamed or nicknamed Israel. He's one of the forefathers of the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, right? And he will, the deliverer will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. It is hard to look into the future and to know what will happen to the Jews. They certainly did not expect that they would reject their Messiah or that the presence of God would be taken away from them and the temple destroyed. They did not expect that God would come in the flesh. 
in the person of Jesus Christ and tabernacle among them. They did not expect to be cut off and Gentiles brought in in their place. It is hard to be certain of all the details of what these, of what, uh, when we read these verses. When it says, all Israel will be saved, does that mean all the remnant of the Jews who were destined to be saved throughout history? Or does that mean that there will be a mass conversion of ethnically Jewish people at some point? It is difficult to say, but the tone and mood of these chapters is expectation and hope. In chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul, a Jew, has poured out his heart. And here, we see that his heart is filled with hope. And like Greg was saying, we pray with faith because God gives us faith for what to pray for. We don't bring, about, bring to pass what we pray by speaking things into existence. Rather, mysteriously, God, through us, brings into existence that which we have planned and put into our hearts to pray for. Exactly how this hope is to be fulfilled is not as clear as we wish it were. But there is hope offered here that one day there will be a greater conversion of Jewish people who for their entire history have mostly rejected the God who brought them out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who ultimately rejected their Messiah, Redeemer, and Lord. Verse 26 identifies the deliverer uh, Uh, Verse 26, talking about Jesus, says that it is Jesus who is bringing bringing about this hope and redemption. He alone is the hope of Israel, the hope of us all. In this Advent season, we look back to the first coming or advent of Christ into the world to save all those he has chosen and called. And we look ahead to his return or second coming, second advent at the end of the age, to finish what he began and bring with him the fulfillment of the promises and the fulfillment of all our hopes. Verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. What about the Jews who have not yet believed in Christ then? The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy, because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. I ask, if any of you were God, would you have had the wisdom to plan it that way? None of us would have thought of that. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor, or who has ever given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. 
Amen. Amen. Now we answer the question, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? The answer is, and the other answer is, we owe him everything. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's the logical thing to do. You can't repay him, but you owe him. Praise the Lord. Do not be squeezed into the world's mold. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? By the washing of your minds with the water of the word. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind in the scriptures by the power of the Holy Spirit that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And as we have seen so far in our study of Romans, only God was able to change our hearts so that we could want to please him. And so to that end we pray. We're going to close with a reading from Genesis 32.10, if we can get that on the board, which uh, has become for me a very precious passage. On my desk at work, I have some three-by-five note cards uh, with memory verses, and almost every day, this verse seems to retain its place on top of the stack. So this is how I often start my day. In this passage, Jacob is returning from his many-year exile in Laban's household and he is coming home. He went out with nothing but his staff in his hand. And when he returned, he had become two whole camps of people and possessions. Please stand with me as the communion servers come forward. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. Amen.